0: Welcome to episode 38, The Babylon Umbrella, The Servant-Type Parallelism.
1: Are you excited?
0: I am excited. And this is Isaiah, (laughs) class two, and I'm Farrell.
1: And I'm Rhonda Pickering.
0: And, you know, never hurts to give us a like and help boost us up there so that we can... uh, get more views, and share the gospel with more people. That's an awesome thing.
1: Especially Isaiah.
0: Yeah, it's Isaiah, right?
1: Okay, so um, like like we've mentioned before, each time we do an episode, there's going to be five classes on Isaiah. This one's the second one. Um, we're going to put a couple of the classes that you can watch on our website that will go into more depth than the, we have time to go into here. Um, In this lesson, we're going to be doing the Babylon Umbrella, and as you're going to see, we're only even going to have time to do two of the um, entities that are part of the Babylon Umbrella in this lesson. You can go and see the other eight of them in class 17.
0: And if we babble in the Babylon Umbrella, you'll understand it fits right in. (laughs) (laughs) Or five babble,
1: no. <laughs> and then um, also we're going to be covering my personal favorite, and by the way, also Doctor Abraham Giliadi's favorite structure in the Book of Isaiah, which is called the Servant Tyrant Parallelism. And just hold on to your socks, because oh my gosh, when you see what Isaiah did in the Servant Tyrant Parallelism, that he, I I don't even know how he did it. I mean, Shakespeare or what? I I just don't know. So our website is www.propheticappointments.com. In our last class, we kind of showed you an overview literary sketch uh, showing a lot of the structures in Isaiah that you can't actually see in the chapters because they govern the whole book. And those handouts are available to download on our website under handouts, as well as, of course, all of the Isaiah classes Are there for you to stream and watch as well and you can also pick up the study guide that goes with it Um, it's Isaiah Illustrated it's a 650 color page book that's my life's work um, on Isaiah based on the works of Dr. Abraham Gileadi. and again I always want to give him credit and thanks for his generous um, willingness to let me use his materials
0: and when teaching the youth i was going to say don't be intimidated by 650 pages that's 650 really cool pages but it is very able to be just focused study
1: what the yeah, chapters study are what you you're want, looking at right? yeah you don't because it's a, it's a it, you don't reference. have to go
0: front to back if you don't want to right. you can just hit the points that are pertinent to the moment
1: and it's got a about 150 pages of charts and and things that we've put in there to try and help you understand what the literary structures are doing in the Book of Isaiah, including the servant-tyrant parallelism. And this is just an overview of what is going to happen here as we see the harlot Babylon and the daughter of Zion put in opposite parallel with each other in the beginning of this giant parallelism that spans um, all of chapter 14 on the left side, and that's part of our reading for this lesson, and it also covers chapters 52 and 53 of Isaiah, and these chapters are covered completely, and when you see what's going on between these chapters like I say it's pretty amazing Um, we have the servant this end-time servant is going to be in opposition to this king In this case he's going to be called the king of Babylon and we're going to explain why as we move along in the lesson and also we have the Savior who of course is in opposition with the dragon which in Revelation is Satan, and you're going to see all of these forces in at work against each other in opposite parallels as we go verse by verse through these chapters in the Magnificent Servant Tyrant parallelism. You can see that while we're going verse by verse through these chapters, we are actually going to follow the seven themes of the Bifid structure. The first part's going to be about ruin and rebirth, then rebellion and compliance, then punishment and deliverance with a grand center of humiliation and exaltation. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Moses chapter 1, I think it's 37 or 39, right there in the Pearl of Great Price. Um the humiliation and exaltation of God's children um, is, his, is His main work and His glory. Um, suffering and salvation is going to be theme five, and disloyalty and loyalty. And in the end, we'll see what happens to the tyrant and the servant in the seventh theme of the bifid structure, disinheritance and inheritance. So with that... Let's go ahead and take a look at the servant-tyrant parallelism as it is pictured in our overview. In our overview, I mean, this this structure itself actually is the whole bottom section there of our um, governing structures map or blueprint. The book of Isaiah moving from left to right from chapter 1 to 66. You can see right about chapter 14, we have that tyrant 14 dropped right in there this one of course is about the king of babylon in uh, isaiah chapter 14. over there in chapters 52 and 53 we see the servant we see one of the most beautiful chapters in the book of isaiah on the atonement of our savior jesus christ and then we're going to see that when abraham gileadi discovered this structure It meant a lot of things number one it's going to prove that just the structure itself is going to prove that there is no first Isaiah and second Isaiah I mean whoever wrote chapter 52 and 53 wrote chapter 14 I mean when you see how intricately they tie together here um, you'll see that there, there would not have been two authors here It meant that Isaiah not only dealt with historical persons as well, but also with archetypes that transcend time and history and that personify good and evil traits. Here were two passages separated far from each other in the text, which described the character traits of one king as the opposite of the other. Scholars have long argued over the king of Babylon in chapter 14. Who was he? These contrasting verses promise to shed light on that question. Here's our king of Assyria. That's our puppet from our fairy tale structure, which we'll talk about when we get to the end of the book of Isaiah. But there's one more thing that I wanted to kind of point out in this overview as we look at these two chapters, chapters 52 and 53, of the servant in the end time and that servant song we've discussed in um, in our earlier classes that the first probably two-thirds uh, ish of the book of Isaiah up to chapter 40 are the Covenant curses it's the descent before the ascent and the Grand Ascent is at the end of the book of Isaiah from chapters 40 to chapter 66 now, if you take this this section of Isaiah that is the blessings of the covenant, and you count 13 chapters from chapter 40, you're going to land in chapter 53. Chapter 53 is what I would call the Holy of Holies of the book of Isaiah. It is where we learn that he was wounded for our transgressions, and that by his stripes we are healed. In in this amazing picture of the suffering and the descent of our Savior Jesus Christ. And if you count 13 chapters from chapter 66 and you subtract them, again, you're going to land right there in chapter 53. So it becomes the center of the covenant blessings. It becomes focused in. On our Savior Jesus Christ, and I, I think this kind of made me feel better because you remember I, I've talked before about how when I learned that in the center of the bifid structure, the exaltation of of God's children, we're in the center of His bifid structure, and I'm and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus, Isaiah fifty three, that's what should be in the center. Well, it made me feel better to learn that he's the he center. Is. Of
0: the- covenant blessing he's
1: the center of the covenant blessings right here in the holy of holies of or the midpoint between chapters 40 and 66 and of course here we have the atonement of christ portrayed through poignant imagery more than 700 years before he is born it's it's just amazing but there's so much more going on here in the servant tyrant parallelism it juxtaposes the King of Zion from chapter 53 with the King of Babylon in chapter 14 as Zion rises from the dust and Babylon descends into the dust the layered messages you will discover in Isaiah will transform not only the way you read scripture but also your personal journey in the near and prophetic future alright so let's go ahead and delve into the servant tyrant parallelism. This is how it appears in your book, in, in Isaiah Illustrated. If those of you are those of you uh, that have the book are following along, you're going to find that the entire parallelism, the way we see it presented in these slides, is actually in the back of your book. Jewish history is grounded in the context of Israel's temporal salvation, and we saw that in the book of Psalms, that the whole book of Psalms is is about the restoration and the the coming back to the temple, to the kingdom, into the presence of God, in this Davidic imagery of this son of David in the end time that comes and restores Israel to her promised lands. I mean, in Israel, that's from the Nile to the Euphrates. I mean, that's never been Israel proper, but in the end time, that is what was promised to Abraham. And then, of course, we have the descendants of Lehi who have promised lands here in America and the tribes that will return again as well. So all of these, this restoration is very, very real and very, very um, tangible in, in prophecy and in expectation of the Jewish people. It's promised that all things that were will be again. Whereas Christian history is rooted in spiritual salvation, which is the hope of humanity's redemption from sin and deliverance from death. In short, while religious Jews expect a new David, who, as Mammonites and other Jewish sages affirm, restores the political kingdom of Israel, gathers and reunites Israel's 12 tribes and rebuilds the Temple in Jerusalem, Christians believe in a Messiah who saves his people from their sins, Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew. And you are going to see both of those ideas come crystal clear in the servant-tyrant parallelism. Note again oh, also you're gonna go here. yes, that on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year in the Hebrew feasts or appointed times the day of atonement pictures the redemption of israel and when israel is forgiven of her sins and becomes aligned again with her god and in the offerings that were offered in the temple there were two goats one named yod-he-vav-he one was god and that one was slain but there was another offering He's actually called the scapegoat. And he too will bear the iniquities of the people, not in the sense that Jesus did, but again in a temporal way, in a physical way, in a restoration of Israel to her promised lands in the end time. Again, in the servant tyrant parallelism, if you take Isaiah chapter 14 with a short introduction from Isaiah chapter 47 and we'll explain why um, when we get to the Babylon umbrella Isaiah chapter 47 is actually part of Isaiah chapter 14 and you'll see why in a little while and you lay it out side by side against chapters 52 and 53 an amazing pattern begins to emerge simultaneously opposite things are happening to a servant in Zion and a Babylonian tyrant. Begin counting in chapter 14 verse 1 and continue on in order verse by verse and you will discover a 20, 21 verses that clearly stand in opposite parallel to what's going on in chapters 52 and 53. Notice also that on each separate page the verses are stepping through the seven themes of the bifid structure as they progress. So let's go ahead. And what we're going to do is we're going to lay them out side by side so that they're easy for you to see. If you were in your book, you would be flipping back from chapter 14 to chapter 52, which is why in the appendix of the book, there's it's actually laid out side by side like you're going to see it on your slides here. Coincidence or intelligent design. You decide all right so let's start with the theme that is the uh, going to be the central point of the whole servant tyrant parallelism and that is the humiliation and exaltation theme we'll start off with that in verses 1 2 & 3 of chapter 52 we're going to move straight through chapter 53 then straight through chapter 53 but we're going to have a four verse introduction or prologue from the fall of Babylon in chapter 47, which is in the the red theme in the second half, and it's in parallel with the red theme in the first half, which is chapters 13 and 14, the ones that we're looking at right now. So here we see that it says it's addressing the daughter of Babylon in chapter 47 verse 1, and it's addressing the daughter of Zion in Isaiah 52, verse 1, to the heart at Babylon, in Isaiah 57, we read, Is it because I have so long kept silent that you no longer fear me? I will expose your fornication and the wantonness of your exploits. When you cry in the distress, let those who flock to you save you. So this is the fall of the harlot Babylon, the daughter of Babylon, that we read about in Scripture. And let's just look or, for.
0: In other words, you have laughed in my face all this time. You think I'm going to come and save you?
1: Well, them? and and again, remember that in the end time in Isaiah, the 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 one that was his wife actually commits adultery. She has other lovers, and this is the whole picture of a harlot. Babylon. The first
0: commandment. Right. Thou shalt have no other gods before me.
1: And in Isaiah chapter one, we we see that God's people are in apostasy. So when we um, when we leave our bridegroom, when we leave Christ and we turn to other gods, whether they be human schemes or idols, materialism, whatever it is that we we turn away from Him in a way that's a form of harlotry, or sure. or, or
0: um, having other gods before him. Yeah,
1: having other gods before him. Yeah. Okay? So, notice that it's telling the harlot Babylon to squat on the ground dethroned, while the daughter of Zion is to sit enthroned. We're looking for opposites here. She is to disrobe and bare her legs, whereas Zion is to put on robes of glory. Babylon is to sit in the dust, Zion is to rise from the dust. God says, I will take vengeance on Babylon and God says in Isaiah 52 verse 3, you shall be redeemed. So opposite things are happening as Babylon in her exalted state, self-exalted state actually is humiliated zion who has been persecuted the daughter of zion who has been humbled is now to be exalted and this is going to be this is setting the theme for the whole servant tyrant parallelism so again our first theme in the bifid structure helps out
0: our first theme in the bifid structure is ruin and rebirth
1: great Okay, we learned that last time, and so here we go in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1, we're going to begin. We see that they are settling in their own land, in verse 1 over here, and continuing on in chapter 52, verse 4, they went down to Egypt. So, down in back in chapter 14, we have proselytes adhering to them, and in Verse 4, we have Assyrians subjecting them. So we have proselytes joining them, whereas Assyrians are subjecting them. Again, we're looking for opposite things that are happening in both chapters. Moving on to the second opposite parallel, we see that they are brought to their own place in chapter 14, whereas in chapter 52, my people are taken over without price so the nation's bring back Israel and she rules over her captors in chapter 14 whereas Jehovah's people are taken over without price and rulers are subjecting them you can see in the servant tyrant parallelism that you know God's people are not doing well (laughs) at the front end whereas these chapter 14 Babylon is in an exalted position and those roles are going to reverse in chapter 14 they rule over their oppressors whereas in chapter 52 those who govern them constantly abuse them now this is an interesting little detail going on here in the servant tyrant, tyrant parallelism that in hebrew poetry the third and the seventh ideas are um complementary instead of opposite Okay, and what we're going to do is we're going to throw up um, on the screen a verse from Nahum, chapters, verses 1 through 7 of Nahum, and let you see that the third verse and the seventh verse are complementary, just as an example so that you can see it in Hebrew poetry. So here it is in Nahum, it's talking about God being jealous, taking vengeance and the wrath in the last days. In verse 6 it says who can stand before his indignation, anger and fury. In verse 8 it's an overrunning flood. So we have Nahum talking about using all these metaphors that we we already know represent this end time bad guy, which actually helps us place Nahum in context, right? But if you look at verse three and verse seven, you see that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And so in Hebrew poetry, the third element and the seventh element kind of are are your positive complementary. Fascinating elements. the numbers. Yes. Three and seven, yeah. yeah beautiful. And you're going to see this in the servant-tyrant parallelism as well. The third uh, parallel verses are complementary. In chapter 14, in the day uh, that you give, He gives you relief from grief, Jehovah does, and then in chapter 52, it says that in that day, I who speak am at hand, and so you have your complementary parallel in the third element. Now we're going to move from the ruin and rebirth to our second theme in the bifit structure, which is rebellion and compliance. Now notice we're still moving down just exactly in order. We're in chapter 14, verse 4. We're in chapter 52, verse 7. We're just moving straight forward in the text. But notice the opposite things happening now here regarding rebellion and compliance. There's a taunt taken up against Babylon in verse 4 in chapter 14 whereas there's tidings of good and a messenger announcing peace in chapter 52 verse 7 the tyrant meets his end in chapter 14 where your God reigns in chapter 52 moving on to the next parallel We have Babylon's wicked king disposed. Jehovah has broken the staff of the wicked and the rod of those who ruled. We already saw the staff and the rod in the last lesson. Um, And then in chapter 52, it says, For they shall see eye to eye when Jehovah returns to Zion. So Jehovah is returning as king, whereas in the other one, the wicked king is being deposed opposite thing happening to the kings of Zion here all right moving on to the fifth parallel in chapter 14 he who struck with unerring blows and struck down the nations in anger we have the hand striking in anger with blows whereas in chapter 52 in verse 10 we have Jehovah bearing his holy arm in the eyes of all nations in chapter 40 of Isaiah, verse 10, we learn something about the holy arms that Jehovah is bearing. See, my Lord Jehovah comes with power. His arm presides for him. His reward is with him and his work precedes him. Thus says Jehovah, observe justice and perform righteousness. Remember that righteousness is a name for that servant in the end time. That's one of his main code names. And you remember that salvation is the name for the Savior because...
0: He is salvation. He is the one that provided for us salvation.
1: And his name in Hebrew...
0: Is Yeshua, which is salvation. Which
1: is salvation. That is his name. Anytime you read salvation, you can substitute Jesus and it, it will... For my Jesus will soon come. It will always work because that is his name. When my righteousness is revealed, my righteousness shall be at hand and my salvation will proceed. And then it says, my arms will judge the people. So here we learn in Isaiah that righteousness is one of God's arms and salvation is the other, the servant and Jehovah. Just like we saw on the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement there. We had the scapegoat, and then we had Jehovah, salvation, right, right, right next to Him. All right, in our next parallel, our seventh parallel again, so that we're going to see complementary again. In verse 7 we have of chapter 14, we have a jubilant celebration because the earth is at rest and at peace. And in 52 verse 9, break out all together in song now in chapter 52 here we have a small little chiasm here why are we crying out for joy why are we breaking out in song in verses 8 and in verses 9 we see in the next parallel that they see eye to eye and in verse 10 the eyes of all nations Um, are seeing, and what are they seeing? His arm. Jehovah returns to Zion, and he bears his holy arm. So we see that Isaiah has put a small little chiasm here, even within the servant tyrant parallelism, within the bifid structure, within all of the other structures that he is using in the book of Isaiah. All right, so we now move into the third theme. The third theme is punishment and deliverance. So let's see what's going on in chapter 14, verse 8. We have, since you have been laid low, no hewer has risen against us. Who was the one hewing down the trees with the axe in Isaiah chapter 10? king
0: of Assyria. That was
1: the king of Assyria, okay. So you're going to see a lot of links between... The king of Assyria and the king of Babylon in Isaiah, they aren't two different entities. They are actually two different aspects. Um, the king of Assyria is more of a political conqueror, whereas the king of Babylon is um, a religious imposter. You remember in ancient Babylon uh, they had the ziggurats, oh, you
0: right. know. I was going to say even kind of a financial... Babylon right. yes, it's mercantile. It's a financial system.
1: Yeah, an economic system, a religious system. Those are more of the entities of the king of Babylon. And you remember that anciently, whenever anyone like conquered the world, they were like the king of Babylon, because that that was the like the religious ideology uh, center. Since you have been laid low, no hewer has risen against us. Whereas in chapter 52, it says, Come out of her and be pure, you who bear the vessel, Jehovah's vessels, the vessels of the Lord. So we have the hewers of the cedars depart Lebanon on the one hand, but on the other side, we have those who bear Jehovah's vessels depart Babylon. All right, in our next parallel, we see that in verse 9 of chapter 14, Sheol is in commotion because of you, anticipating your arrival. We're, we're down in hell now. and But you shall not leave in haste nor go in flight. Jehovah is going before you. On the other hand, in chapter 52. All right, so we had our deliverance.
0: So Sheol is waiting in wait for the tyrant. And we are patiently moving forward
1: to, to the presence of Jehovah. He's right. delivering us because that was punishment in Sheol and deliverance. That was the last theme that that we did. Is as we move through verse by verse in this amazing opposite thing that's happening between Isaiah fourteen and chapters fifty two and fifty three. All right, as we move into the central theme that of humiliation and exaltation, we see that. The king of Assyria the King of Babylon in this case has become powerless, as we are here in Sheol. And in chapter fifty-two, verse thirteen, we are introduced to a servant, a servant that is exceedingly eminent. So as the king of Assyria
0: descends. becomes powerless,
1: he is, powerless, he <laughs> is becoming eminent in the end time. In the ninth opposite parallel, we see that the glory of the king of Babylon has been cast down to Sheol. The servant formerly endured ignominy. He, he was appalled by many, and his appearance was marred beyond human likeness, whereas the tyrant formerly had enjoyed eminence, his glory. Then we can see that he had glory but this servant had been appalled. He appalled many and that his appearance was marred and his semblance unlike that of men. In some translations, it says that he uh, was marred beyond human likeness um, in his suffering, in his descent, in order to deliver uh, Israel back to her promised lands and in his mission in chapter 14 it says you who commanded the nations have been hewn down to the earth and in chapter 52 again we see so yet he will astound many nations and they will shut their mouths and they will consider that they could have been wrong about him. Now, in the center of this servant-tyrant parallelism, we're actually going to see something that happens sometimes in the center of chiasms. They'll actually double the middle part so that you, you get a double whammy on the most important part of it, which is this Humiliation and exaltation theme. So, we're going to see that theme hit one more time as we move through. And I just wanted to bring in here that in 3 Nephi 21, we have Jesus speaking of these very verses in Isaiah 52 that the kings and the queens, the kings of the Gentiles shut their mouths, and that you can see in its opposite parallel there that the Lord heals his servant. That is marred, and so this is beautiful because Jesus is giving us a commentary on what is going on with this servant that endures marring in Isaiah chapter 52. We'll talk about that more when we do the Jesus's um, bracketing that he does in about searching Isaiah in 3 Nephi in a couple of lessons, but. It's interesting to note that he's act, Jesus is actually giving us a personal commentary on these verses in 3 Nephi. Alright, as we move on to our next parallel in Isaiah 14, we're still in the heart of the, of, the, of the Sermon Tyrant parallelism. It says that you said in your heart, I will rise in the heavens and I will set my throne above the stars of God. Who tried to set his throne above the stars of God? Notice that this is the it's kind
0: of an ancient Babylon approach to build yeah. the Tower of Babel, and
1: and this is a lot of the debate about who is this King of Babylon. It seems to even go back to the preexistence to Satan when he tried to establish his throne, and again you can see that that's probably a legitimate interpretation right there. The power behind the power, because. As we move into Isaiah 53, we just finished with Isaiah 52, and with that march, those March Servant passages. Now we're going to move into Isaiah 53, and we're going to see Jesus like a sapling. He grew up in His presence as a stalk out of arid or out of dry ground. So again, we see one ascent trying to ascend above the stars, and Jesus descending like a stalk in arid ground again opposite parallels there and you can see that these characters are in opposition to each other as well now just for those of you um, I think this is an amazing quote from a that I'm about to give you um, but just for those of you who don't know who he is you can see that he was a disciple of Mark coming down um, through Pantheus and Clement of Alexandria and uh, just a little history on him he wrote against celsius which is against the heresies in the early christian church in about 88 185 um, he ministered in caesarea he was exiled by his enemies in the church and he died after torture at the hands of romans so here we have one of our our faithful early saints in the christian church but this is a quote from him that i think is just amazing Speaking of the Christ child, he says, and taking, and he's talking about the Magi when they came to see the Christ child. And he says, and taking the child up, each of us in turn, and bearing him in our arms, we saluted him and worshiped him and presented him gold, myrrh, and frankincense, addressing him thus We gift you with your own, O Jesus, ruler of heaven. In no other way would things unordered be ordered, were you not at hand. In no other way could things heavenly be brought into conjunction with things earthly, but by your descent. Such service cannot be discharged, if only the servant is sent to us, as when the master himself is present." Neither can so much be achieved when the king sends only his satraps, his governors, to war as when the king is there himself. It became the wisdom of your system that you should deal in this manner with men. The idea that God himself, as Abinadi says in Mosiah, would descend To save mankind, something that he couldn't assign to anyone else, is so beautiful. And we see this in the servant tyrant parallelism. Here it is from Mosiah 13. And now Abinadi said unto them, I would that you should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. And moreover, I say unto you, that salvation doth not come by the law alone. And were it not for the atonement which God Himself shall make for the sins and iniquity of His people, they must unavoidably perish.
0: <laughs> powerful words.
1: Powerful words, and powerful in light. Of what's going on here in Isaiah 53. In Moses chapter 1, verses 37 through 39, the Lord God spake unto Moses, saying, The heavens, they are many, and they cannot be numbered unto man, but they are numbered unto me, for they are mine. And as one earth shall pass away, and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. There is no end to my works, neither to my words. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Now coming to the next parallel, we see these beautiful verses about God himself. And he was despised and disdained by men, a man of grief, accustomed to suffering. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was shunned and deemed by us of no merit. Again, this is an opposition to Isaiah 14, verse 14, where the tyrant is aspiring to ascend to the altitude of the clouds and make himself like the Most High. In verse 15, we begin to see the suffering and the salvation of the fifth theme in the bifit structure. But you have been brought down to Sheol, to the utmost depths of the pit, Whereas in 53, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed because of our iniquities. The tyrant's ignominity is irrevocable, but the servant's ignominity is redemptive. In parallel 14, is this the man who made the earth to shake and kingdoms quake? And by the way, there are like six linking words to the king of Assyria and the destruction he does um, in that verse, in verse uh, 16 and 17. Whereas the servant is causing healing, and with his wounds we are healed. Notice that it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed because of our iniquities. The price of our peace he incurred, and with his wounds we are healed. These again are linking words. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The price of our peace he incurred in his wounds we are healed are the transgressions and iniquities of the people that the suffering Messiah takes upon himself. He generates on their behalf. The peace and healing that he generates on their behalf are specific functions of Israel's God, Jehovah. So in, in this case, these words, these healing, these, this peace, these are again in our codenames and pseudonyms, these are words that specifically apply to Jesus Christ and to no one else. He is our peace, and He alone heals us, yeah. Those words that we underline, the transgressions, the iniquity, the peace, the healing, these are all words that link directly to our Savior Jesus Christ. He is our peace, and He is the one that heals us. These are linked throughout Isaiah, O Jehovah, you bring about our peace. Even all that we have accomplished, you have done for us in Isaiah 26. In the day, Jehovah binds up the fracture of his people and heals their open wound in Isaiah 30. So even though we have a servant here that has been a righteous Davidic king and has um, employed his, has kept covenant and has brought the people under protection, in no way does this ever eclipse what our Savior Jesus Christ did for us. We are saviors on Mount Zion with a little s, where he is our savior.
0: Our healer, The great big s.
1: And our peace, yeah. And all of this is in this suffering and salvation theme, in the fifth theme of the bifid structure that we're seeing here as we move on to the opposite parallel number 15, in verse 17, notice that the tyrant keeps men in bondage, whereas Jehovah brought together upon them the iniquity of us all, and releases us from that bondage. Okay, now we move on to the sixth theme in the fit structure, in our servant-tyrant parallelism, and we're going to see disloyalty and loyalty. We're going to see that the kings of the nations are honorable in their death, whereas the servant goes like a lamb to the slaughter. All rulers of the nations lie in state, each one among his own kindred, whereas the servant is going like a lamb to the slaughter here. Then in verse 19, But you are cast away unburied. Whereas in verse 8 of chapter 53, the servant is slain for the crimes of his people. For the crimes of my people to whom the blow was due. Notice that the tyrant in chapter 14 was slain for his own crimes. Whereas in chapter 53, the servant is slain for the crimes of his people. In verse 20, you shall not share burial with them. Remember, being unburied is a covenant curse, and he's unburied because he did violence. Whereas whereas in Isaiah 53, verse 9, the servant is buried among the rich because he did no violence. He receives a covenant blessing, a proper burial, whereas the disloyal servant, the tyrant here, Does receives an ignominious burial. Alright now we're moving into the last theme of the bifid structure, the disinheritance or inheritance. Again we can see that we're down in verse 20 of chapter 14. We're getting to the end of this section and we're going to notice that it's all about being disinherited in chapter 14 whereas in chapter 53 we're going to notice something really special happen we saw the Savior. We saw His atonement happening, but we're going to pay really close attention to what's happening in chapter 53 because the Savior is now going to turn and talk to someone else in chapter 53. If you don't watch carefully, you'll miss it. All right, in verse 20 it says, Prepare for the massacre of their sons. So this is Babylon being wiped out. But in verse 10 in chapter 53, it says, He will see his offspring again. That would be a covenant blessing. Now, watch this it says, He will see his offspring that the purposes of Jehovah might prosper in his hand. Mm-hmm. Now, that's interesting because we've learned that in Isaiah, there's two hands there's the hand that's the king of Assyria. That is the hand of punishment. And then there's the hand that is the servant. The hand of deliverance. Jesus is not a hand. The servant is a hand. Jesus is the arm. He's the arm of salvation in Isaiah. Jehovah will see his offspring. That the purpose, his purposes might prosper in his hand. Because of his atonement. Now his hand. Can do his job. Look at the way it's worded here. He shall see the toil of his soul. Jehovah shall see the toil of the servant's soul and be satisfied because of his knowledge. And by bearing their iniquities, shall my servant, the righteous one, vindicate many. And notice that that is in opposition. I will cut off Babylon's name and the remnant. And right here in verse 11, we have openly identified that the one he is talking to is his servant, the righteous one. And in that verse, it said that it was because of his knowledge that his servant, the righteous one vindicates many. That knowledge is covenant knowledge. It's because he knew that if he was a willing willing to do whatever God required of him, that by doing so he could invoke a Davidic covenant and that the city, the people that were loyal to him could be saved. My servant, the righteous man, will vindicate many in verse 11, referring to God's end-time servant. But he also knows That by serving as their proxy savior, Jehovah will spare the people. When the end-time Assyrian power attempts to destroy them, such unselfish acts define Jehovah's righteousness, which the servant exemplifies. But a king bearing the iniquities of his people by answering for their disloyalties to God can be hazardous hezekiah suffered almost to death before god assured him that he would deliver his people proxy saviors such as king hezekiah for example bear the transgressions of their peoples when they intercede with god on their behalf but they do so in order to obtain their people's temporal salvation or in the case of god's servant and others who minister in the priesthood after the holy order of god They intercede for others to qualify them in part for temporal salvation and in part for spiritual salvation. However, they don't save the people. Jehovah does. They merely create the conditions for the covenant to come into effect for salvation to occur. Although there exist many types of suffering, suffering for one's sins and suffering inherent in our mortal state, suffering of generational covenant curses and so forth, under the terms of the Davidic covenant, suffering assumes another dimension. The kind of suffering a proxy savior takes on when he covenants with God on behalf of those to whom he ministers. By they, be they a nation that he rules, an army that he commands, or simply your family or your friends. That kind of suffering is redemptive because it pays a price for the salvation or the deliverance of others. And this is the mission of the 144,000, the kings and the queens of the Gentiles in the end time.
0: I kind of like the the, well, I I guess the best way to put that is a lot of people think that to be twinkled, as they put it,
1: twinkled or translated, (laughs) right?
0: Right, is it's a get out of jail free card, truthfully, so that we don't suffer any of the the
1: tribulation, right?
0: It's a service, um, privilege to become translated so that you can serve more, bigger, bigger, yeah. yeah.
1: Alright, and ending our servant tyrant parallelism, I will turn the land now, we had the posterity now, we're talking about the lands, I will turn it into swamp lands, and Babylon will become a broom of destruction, whereas in chapter 53 verse 12, I will assign him an inheritance among the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the mighty. So this is an amazing structure that shows that Babylon, there's people that are descending through their choices, through the bifid structure, while there's people that are ascending. They are. It applies on many levels of the different categories of people and the way they're responding to the circumstances. It's a refiner's fire at this time. Through Babylon's oppression of Zion, God tests His people's faithfulness to the Covenant so that they can ascend. God has created these special circumstances so that He might turn Zion's curses into blessings. God's servant instructs Zion in the law of God's Covenant and serves as a model of righteousness. So that is the magnificent servant-tyrant parallelism, and again, you decide. you think it's by accident? Alright, now we're going to look at chapters 13 and 14. They were part of our reading assignment, and you can see that the color has changed. We are now in red. Red is our middle theme, humiliation and exaltation. And this is a structure that we call the Babylon umbrella. What you have is in chapters 13 through 23, there's an oracle against 10 nations. Uh, Chapter 13 and 14 are both on Babylon, so you have to count include those two chapters as one of them, and then there's 10. And then on the other hand, on the other side of your red pillar on the second half of the book of Isaiah, there's only one chapter. Guesses? Well, it's on top of the umbrella, that's why.
0: 47 is that what you say?
1: yes yes so we're talking about the fall of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 47 and you can see here in our Babylon umbrella that we have Isaiah chapter 47 at the top and then underneath our umbrellas we have these raindrops that represent the nations the 10 nations that we're going to have oracles against They're actually under condemnation. And by the Bifid structure, we can see that these nations are all part of the fall of Babylon.
0: The Babylon umbrella.
1: It's the Babylon umbrella. And Isaiah, again, is not the only one to use oracles against foreign nations. You can see here in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, there's all oracles against the foreign nations. But just like we saw between chronicles and isaiah he's actually doing something kind of special with these oracles that's that's more than just a you know you're in trouble because (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay the first thing that we notice is that um the that there is a verse the very last verse in chapter 46 kind of introduces the babylon umbrella the fall of babylon In chapter 47, here's your verse that introduces the fall of Babylon. It says, I will grant deliverance in Zion and in
0: Israel, my glory. So we have a Red Sea event.
1: We have a reversal. Exactly. So we have the same thing. Remember, we're building on those concepts that have already been established, right? Right. And you can see here that. There are the five that are mostly judgment on Judah's neighbors. So these are nations that are, you know, geographically surrounding Israel anciently. And then you're gonna well, see. And yeah. <laughs> and you'll see that the last five are more about Babylon and her allies. Okay. Why Isaiah has structured them this way um, is kind of let you decide but it's interesting that the fourth one in each case is the apostates in israel itself so we have ephra excuse me ephraim in apostasy is oracle number four whereas jerusalem in apostasy is oracle number nine and isaiah is painting a composite of what babylon is in the last days and you can see that in the the, the cumulative oracle in the first set is gonna be Egypt which in Isaiah is actually America.
0: Well to reinforce that where was Joseph exiled to
1: right Ephraim was in Egypt and why was he in Egypt so that he could save Israel, right? Okay, and so Egypt is is in trouble in this case. Egypt's about to um, receive stripes of men <laughs> in Isaiah chapter nineteen, and this is pretty amazing because we, in our come follow me reading, are reading thir- chapters thirteen and fourteen, which is going to be your Babylon. It's it's the Babylon raindrop over here. Okay. Oh no, it's over here, right? This is your Babylon uh, raindrop that that represents uh, Assyria and Babylon. Um, But I think that one of the most important chapters in Isaiah to read is chapter 19. Because it's the oracle against latter-day end-time Egypt, which is America. It's all about us. And in chapter 20, it's all about the end time servant that comes to Egypt. And so, if if you'll bear with me, I know chapter 19 was not part of your reading, but we are going to look at what's going on in chapters 13 and 14 in the Babylon umbrella. Then we're going to just take a quick run over to chapter 19 to see what's going on with Egypt. And if you want to see, what's going on in all the rest of the oracles you can look at that class on on the babylon umbrella on our website each of these oracles is painting a specific picture of something that's happening in babylon in the end time before the fall of babylon isaiah's arch babylon includes all of the nations of the world especially the ones who were in alliance with babylon each one of these nations brings to light some kind of disposition or character trait, and the Lord's judgments come against Babylon and against all of these nations. And that's because the whole thing is the picture of the end time. Babylon. Thus, the umbrella. Thus, the umbrella. It covers all of this. This is what this is what's going down. Okay, when Zion is established. So let's take a look at. Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, here you can see that you know ancient Babylon geographically would have been Iraq and uh, let's just take a look at some of the verses and some of the things that are in this particular scripture. Although Assyria may rise as an evil empire of the latter days, even Assyria will have a remnant saved. Isaiah's Babylon, on the other hand, remains deliberately anonymous and is the primeval enemy of God. More than a single nation or nations, it represents all that ever has been and all that is now in opposition to the God's plan of salvation. We notice that Assyria has a a remnant saved, but Babylon is utterly destroyed. Do you remember anything about being utterly destroyed? Well,
0: oh, yeah. Book, Book of Revelation right. talks about it never being rebuilt again.
1: Fullness of iniquity, a covenant curse. Okay? And this Which is... Which is
0: kind of why I look at it that there's two levels. The, the literal and the... Yes. And the metaphorical or the...
1: Right. The symbolic one, you know. The, yeah. Always the symbolic and the metaphorical levels will never make the plain, simple sense of it. Not true. Right. Very true on a little, literal level as well. In chapter 19, we read that in the end time, in that day, in the day that Babylon falls, in that day there shall be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Remember we said that Assyria has a remnant that's saved. As a matter of fact, what's fascinating is that when you think about it, Assyria is the bad guy in the end time, the king of Assyria. It says in this particular verse that Assyria, the people that are saved in Assyria, are the work of his hands. Is it possible that there's people in Assyria who don't go along
0: oh.
1: with the king of Assyria?
0: Seems obvious.
1: Who actually stand at the risk of their own lives against what's going down in their nation?
0: It's their leader.
1: Yeah. Alright, so let's read this. In that day there shall be a highway from Egypt, America, and time America, Joseph, the house of Joseph. It says that in also in uh, Ether chapter 13, that as um, Joseph went down to Egypt, Lehi went to America, paralleling America with Egypt there. Um, in that day there shall be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come to Egypt and the Egyptians go to Assyria and the Egyptians shall labor with the Assyrian. in that day Israel will be the third party to Egypt and Assyria so we have Joseph we have Judah and we have the tribes here a blessing in the midst of the earth Jehovah of hosts will bless them saying blessed be Egypt my people These are the faithful Gentiles that are numbered with the house of Israel here. Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. This is the amazing Ezekiel 37 coming together of the house of Israel and the restoration. On a grand scale. On a grand scale. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 8 through 10. But let us who are of the day be sober. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation for god hath not appointed us to the wrath but to obtain salvation by our lord jesus christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep we will live together with him so i love this verse because in the end time you see that this this remnant these people who are faithful to god are not appointed to suffer any kind of covenant curse or wrath from the king of Assyria, but to stand and be deliverers and saviors on Mount Zion. Assyria is not directly mentioned in the list of the ten burdens or oracles, although its looming presence is made clear in Isaiah 20 verses 1-6, through 6. historically it's talking about them. Because they are the ones afflicting the nations, their judgment was already pronounced. We saw in that Davidic passage in chapter 10 where you had the Davidic servant in 9 and 10 and 11 that were kind of sandwiching him and conquering him. Their judgment was already pronounced in Isaiah 10. All of the nations listed in Isaiah's oracles, including Babylon, the first one in 13 and 14 that we're reading about, suffered anciently at the hands of Assyria. Though all these nations engaged in conspiracy against Assyria at one point or another, historically, which is just fascinating that Isaiah is so meticulous about his use of the types and the shadows. Babylon, on the other hand, stands out twice. Its destruction is mentioned twice. Babylon is here singled out for permanent destruction. Isaiah is looking at the whole future of Babylon until its final eclipse which in revelation is at the mount of olives when when the, the the what's left of the king of assyria's army is put down isaiah chapter 10 verse 12 but when my lord has fully accomplished his work in mount zion and in jerusalem he will punish the king of assyria for his notorious boasting and infamous conceit because he said I have done it in my own ability and shrewdness, for I am ingenious. I have done away with the borders of nations. Holy cow, new world order hijacked by the king of Assyria here. I have ravaged their reserves. I have vastly reduced the inhabitants. Hmm. Is that abomination anywhere on the it's- Georgia Stones? Is that... A stated goal of the the secret combinations to reduce the inhabitants. That is, the abomination that depopulates. Right. Right? In Daniel. I have impounded the wealth of peoples like a nest, and I have gathered up the whole world as one gathers abandoned eggs. Not one flapped its wings or opened its mouth to utter a peep. Therefore, will the Lord Jehovah of hosts send a consumption into his fertile lands and cause a fire to flare up like a burning hearth to undermine his glory? Again, in the end, the wicked fall into the pit that they dig for the others. That's how covenant curses work when the tables turn. The light of Israel will be the fire. I'm looking
0: forward to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The light of Israel will be the fire and the Holy One the flame. And it shall burn up and devour his briars and thorns. Briars and thorns are the wicked that are poking and, and piercing others in a single day. His choice force and productive fields, it will consume both life and substance, turning them into a rotting morass. Again, these, these are reversals, which means that that's what he did to others, right? And the trees of his forest shall be so few. A child could record them and this is so cool because these are all linking words in Isaiah when you see that rose-colored word look it up in the back of, of the glossary in the end of the Isaiah Illustrated and you'll learn that few is a term that Isaiah only uses for the remnant that are faithful that are left and the child the child is the same child in Revelation that was born the kingdom the kingdom, and he's recording them where in the, in the book of life. of life so beautiful and you can you can pull all this out through the and the trees remember trees are people and this is all imagery embedded through word linking in the book of Isaiah um, in chapter 14 verse 24 Jehovah of hosts made an oath saying as I foresaw it so it shall happen as I planned it so shall it be I will break Assyria in my own land. Notice that Assyria is not broken in America. The king of Assyria is defeated in Jerusalem. I'll show you that in Isaiah 31 in just a minute. Their yoke will be taken from them, and their burden removed from their shoulders. These are the things that are determined upon the whole earth. This is the hand that was upraised over all the nations. For what Jehovah of hosts has determined, who shall revoke? When his hand is upraised, who can turn it away?" So again, you can study all of these and, and you can see all of these burdens or oracles against the nations that are a composite type of Babylon that falls in Isaiah chapter 47 in the class on Isaiah, um, the Babylon umbrella. And with that, let's go really quickly to Revelation because Revelation is talking about the fall of Babylon too. And he talks about it, John talks about it, using the same beast imagery that Daniel uses.
0: Right.
1: Except for he uses different kinds of beasts. And and this is kind of fun (coughs) because, um, you know, when I teach Revelation and the beasts of Daniel and everything... um, I have to interest the the youth and the kids, and so what teenage boy is not going to be totally involved in the lesson the minute I pull out a, a seven-headed, seven-headed dragon? dragon.
0: <laughs> Jason and the Argonauts.
1: <laughs> yeah. So in in the, the in Revelation, we learn that there is a beast that rises from the sea amongst the peoples and that this beast is being ridden by the harlot Babylon. So here she is on this beast. And what I wanted you to see here is just like Isaiah, when, when you learn the structures that are happening in the book of Isaiah then you start to see them in other places. So, Revelation 13 is actually divided in half, like a bifid, okay? And it's in the two pieces, and then there's all kinds of literary structures going on between the two halves, okay? So, what you see is in verses 1 through verses 5, there's a chiasm about this first seven-headed dragon with the ten horns being ridden by the harlot there, and you see that in the very center of this dragon story, what do you have?
0: A death have stroke.
1: A death stroke. That's fascinating because we learned from Revelation 17 that this first beast being ridden by the harlot is kind of replaced by. I need
0: to pull this back a little because kind of I can't bring see it.
1: I so can see him, By a second beast. And so now this beast comes out. From the earth that means he's not from amongst all the peoples he's not like a new world order he comes from his own land and he's a little horn he he has not been a country for a long period of time according to daniel do you know what these three horns are you need
0: to put them back a little,
1: oh, back is, a little? okay so according, over here. according to daniel um he takes out three of the ten horns
0: right, right.
1: They probably would have opposed him, but according to Revelation, also he actually kills the harlot. The harlot.
0: Yeah, he okay. Turns on the harlot,
1: and and this dragon still has the, the the seven horns that are left of the ten horns, but he causes everyone. Even though this one had a death stroke, if you look carefully at the way it's structured. The death stroke becomes the first element and the last element of the second beast, which means that these guys are two phases of the same thing. He just hijacks it.
0: Yeah, he kind, kind of moves into power, into the programs.
1: So. Mm-hmm. After he deceitfully actually murders the harlot Babylon, and, and that's... Kind of a another opposite thing going on. You have the king of Zion who gives his life for his bride. But you have the king of Babylon who murders his mistress in order to catapult himself into power. So
0: everybody, you got to appreciate the work she put into this dragon.
1: I know. Both
0: dragons, you know. <laughs>
1: it's kind of crazy, yeah.
0: She, uh, she gets into her object lessons.
1: I do, I do, because, yeah. you know, kids appreciate it, right?
0: Well, especially young boys love dragons.
1: <laughs> anyway, all right, so we're not going to do a whole lesson on Revelation today, but you can see that in the beginning, the dragon gives authority to the beast, but in the end, he is speaking through that second beast. So who is that mother of harlots? Who is that one that he murders when Babylon falls? Who is this? It's Revelation seventeen says that she's the um, the beast carries her and that she's drunk with the blood of the saints. So she's murdering Christians. She is representing a religion, a church. And she is going to be persecuting Christians in the end time. In DNC 86, what's amazing is that we see that she's the whore, even Babylon, she persecutes the church and she makes all nations to be part of it, in whose hearts the enemy, even Satan, is sitting to reign. And he sows the tares. But check this out. The tares are choking the wheat, but it says in DNC eighty eight that she is the tares. She is the one that this is kind of crazy because Satan kind of sets her up to persecute the people and then he takes her out to be the sole power. I mean that is that is like the double cross of double crosses. Right. But it's all designed for the purpose of providing the spiritual battleground in which God's children can become purified and their garments made white so that they can be. Nephi sees the same harlot, this this church, he and he describes her as a religious system. And you can see here that... All of the words that John the Revelator and Nephi used describing her are the same, except for Nephi calls her the abominable church, but John calls her mystery Babylon. And it's interesting when you consider why Nephi would not use the term Babylon, whereas John would.
0: Because Babylon was still a country nation in his day
1: exactly so it's
0: hard to make it metaphorical when it still mm-hmm. is it ex- exists it would
1: be like using a real name instead of a pseudonym right, right. For, for nephi whereas by the time john came along
0: babylon. babylon
1: was history
0: yeah and yet it's the type of,
1: and you could use about. it as a type right, right. all right hmm. but in every way you can see that they're talking about the same the same concept just
0: Pagan, church, that, economic,
1: right. so, as, I religion, think that, so to speak. Right, as as you have a new world order in the end time, you'll have a one world church, an ecumenical system. In First Nephi 14, he says, For the time cometh, saith the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and a marvelous work among the children of men, a work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand, here we go with the hands again, or on the other either to the convincing of them unto peace and eternal life, or the deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, unto their being brought down into captivity, both temporally and spiritually, meaning, I'm not speaking metaphorically here. (laughs) If you don't repent, you will be taken into captivity. Again, in 1 Nephi 14, it says, And it came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few. Look at them picking up on that word "few." That Isaiah, the remnant a remnant, because of the wickedness and the abominations of the whore, who sat upon many waters, peoples. Nevertheless, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were upon all of the face of the earth, and their dominions upon the face of the earth were small, because of the wickedness of the great whore whom I saw. And look what she has the ability to do. Remember, she's riding on that beast. She has power. And it came to pass that I beheld that the great mother of abominations did gather together multitudes upon the face of all the earth among all nations of the Gentiles to fight against the Lamb of God. Seems like we get this ultimate showdown here. And then Nephi tells us that, and I saw the power of God descended on them.
0: The gates of Morador.
1: All right, so now we're going to look at, at this uh, the few chapters that we were assigned to read, 28 through 30. We only have time to bring out just a couple of verses here. But notice the condition of God's people in Isaiah 28. Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine now again we're seeing that here in isaiah there's another little parallel and crisscross going on here between verse three and four it says the crown of pride in verse three the drunkards of ephraim shall be trodden underfoot and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower so isaiah is doing a reversal right there but what's in the center look at verse two Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one. You know, I always hear people talking about the, the mighty and strong one in DNC eighty five that's clothed with light for a covering and everything. It sounds like it sounds like it, it, it could be a good guy, but I want you to see here that there are other mighty and strong ones in scripture. Mighty and strong one in this case is a very bad guy, which is as a tempest of hail. And a destroying storm and a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Do you see any code names in that? The flood? Well, the yeah, storm?
0: That's all imagery of
1: It's all this king Tyrants. of Israel at this end time. Now here's here's the link that you're going to love. Watch this link. It says, and he shall cast down to the earth with the hand. Now notice that it's, it describes that when he attacks, that he is as the hasty fruit, which before the summer, which when he looks upon it, seeing it while is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. Wait a minute. There's some big links going on here. Who gets eaten up in the book of 2nd Esdras? <laughs> the third and the fourth feather, right? Right. So what is it talking about here in Isaiah 28? What What is it that the fruit is being gobbled up that it talks about? Okay. The
0: spoils, the...
1: And who else gets cast down? Let's do a little bit of cross referencing here in Daniel. The little horn. He waxes great and he what?
0: Even to the host. Cast down
1: the host.
0: Some of the hosts.
1: And he stamps on them, trods them underfoot. This is a direct link in Isaiah 28 to Daniel chapter 8 and that little horn and what's going on. Kind of a,
0: I don't know, a humbling of Ephraim. We, yeah. we sometimes try to assume that that the Lord is going to withhold he's gonna judgment. He's going
1: to judge all those bad guys, right? Yeah,
0: but yet we are, as it refers here, drunk.
1: On our own pride.
0: On our own pride.
1: And if you read Isaiah 19, we don't even see it coming. I hope some do. Yes, right. (laughs) I keep using those blankets and you keep telling me, wait, 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 not me!
0: (laughs) Well, I'm hoping not (laughs) (laughs) me. Let's hope that we're awake, right?
1: So, this is just a little bit of history on fig trees in Palestine. Just showing you there's two crops. There's an early summer crop and then there's, that's called the early fig. It's, It's not as good as the one that's produced in the fall. Those ones are the prize ones that you want to sell in the marketplace. But the ones in the in the early figs that are produced in in May, they um they usually kind of get gobbled up because after winter everybody's hungry.
0: Well, and, and they're looking for that treat,
1: and yeah, and they're gonna gobble up that fruit. There's a little of that imagery going on here in Isaiah 28, um, but here uh, is a commentary on this verse um, that I thought was really good. It's it's describing that when he looketh upon it and sees this fruit. And it, it he while it's yet in his hand, be you know before he can even cook it or put it in a basket, he gobbles it up. And as soon as he got it in his hand, he cannot keep it or forbear from eating it, but greedily devours it and swallows it down at once, denoting a desirable prey. This this is denoting historically what a desirable prey the ten tribes were to Assyria, but on the end time table, somebody is gobbling up Ephraim because they're hungry because they need the spoils what did it say about the king of Assyria I have robbed the nations and I have no one uttered a peep Hmm. alright let's
0: it's hard not to play that in a modern context I mean boy, do I go there um
1: Everybody else is probably going there in our heads. Well, I, just, I again, we're thinking, looking at this in the context of Ezra's eagle. Economically,
0: and, Europe has became beholden energy-wise.
1: Right. And America Spoils. is a, a breadbasket. It's a spoil. It's a rich land to, to take. Well, it says the fat valleys of Ephraim, right? They're going to become as a fading flower. All right, going back to Isaiah 8. That was part of our reading. We're going to talk about the king of Assyria here. Therefore, will my Lord cause to come up over them, the great and mighty waters of the river, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. He will rise up over his channels and overflow all his banks. He will sweep into Judea like a flood and passing through it, reach the very neck. His outspread wings will span the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel, And then in chapter 14 of Isaiah, wail at the gates, howl in the city, utterly melt away, you Philistines. From the north shall come pillars of smoke, and no place he has designated shall evade it. So you're going to see here, I've picked out a few verses to help you see. We have targeted military weapons that create pillars of smoke.
0: Right. But I was thinking when you use the imagery of the neck, that means you're right next to the head.
1: Right. And you remember that Assyria, when they were coming to to take Jerusalem, I mean, they were right outside the city gates. Right. And it was right up to the neck. All right. So here is our, one of our verses here that show you that... These are, there's all these connections between the king of Babylon in chapter 14 and the king of Assyria in chapter 10 to show you that they're just two aspects of the same guy. They're both rods, they're both staffs, they're, you know, they they both are called the wrath and then they're, they're just two aspects of the same situation. All right, the king of Assyria, and and we're not going to read all of these, he feigns peace to deceive the nations. Look at all the references to that. He treacherously and unexpectedly attacks. His armies invade all nations like an inundating deluge, like a flood. They act as instruments of God's wrath. It's a flooding scourge. And they sweep forward. Again, in Isaiah chapter 8, we see that though nations form packs, they shall be routed. Give heed all you distant lands. Take You may take courage in one another but shall be in fear. You may arm yourselves, but shall be terrorized. Though you hold consultations, they shall come to naught. Though you make proposals, they will not prove firm. Emmanuel, for God is with us. An oracle concerning the wilderness of the West. This is from one of the oracles in chapter 21. Like tornadoes sweeping through the south, they come from the steps. Do you know what the steps are? That's a pretty specific geographic location.
0: Well, I was gonna, my thoughts were the steps of the temple concept.
1: Oh, I, I like that, but this one is spelled a little differently. It's S-T-E-P-P-E-S. It's a type of mountain ah. in a specific location called the steps. I'll show you in just a minute after I finish reading it. A land of terror. A grim vision has been revealed to me. A traitor in the act of treachery. A destroyer laying waste. Attack, O Elamites, lay siege. you means. All the sign that Babylon has caused, I will bring to an end. You can see that Babylon is going to fall by a double cross, by treachery. Babylon being maybe perhaps a new world order. Those are the steps, the green. Hmm. These are called the steps. You have the western steps, you have the eastern steps, and they're, they're, they're a, it's a type of mountainous, Location called the steps. It's just amazing that Isaiah is just nailing one detail after another, after another, after another. Okay, here. Isaiah 28 again. My Lord has in store one mighty and strong. Here's that mighty and strong evil guy as a ravaging hailstorm and and a deluge. um, He hurls them to the ground by his hands, the proud garlands of the drunkards of Ephraim. You have supposed... By taking refuge in deception. So this is what Ephraim did in order to get this this double cross. It says, you took refuge in deception and hiding behind falsehoods. Do we do that? Do we make oh treaties and falsehoods? And, <coughs> and we think that we're going to end up on top of, of all this deception.
0: We compliment ourselves on our shrewdness.
1: Our well, shrewdness, right? <laughs> Look what God says. He says, you have covenanted with death or reached an understanding with Sheol that should the overflow flooding scourge sweep through the earth, it would not reach you. It's like we're making the double cross of the double cross, of, co- and, and we're
0: covenanting with that. The Book of Mormon calls it secret combination.
1: Yeah. Okay, Isaiah 23 and 24, there's a couple of more of our Babylon oracles here, but they say some interesting things. That's why I told you, I'm just going to pick out a couple of nuggets out of some of these oracles just to get you thinking, okay? So too with the land of the Chaldeans, the people who founded Tyre for shipping. So we're talking commerce here, right? Was it not the Assyrians who set up observatories and exposed its fortifications and caused her downfall? We're like talking space station stuff here. Sound your sirens, O merchant ships. Your haven is desolate. From a sector of the earth we hear singing, Glorious are the righteous, Whereas I thought I was wasting, I am wasting away. I am weakening. Woe is me. The traitors have been treacherous and the turncoats have deceitfully betrayed. But again, you see that God, there's that song of salvation right there in Isaiah's little apocalypse. Now you're in my book. I know, right? Look at that. You want to read this one? You got that vile person. Right. Check it out.
0: Stand up a vile person. With the
1: arms of a what?
0: You're ahead of me now.
1: I'm just jumping The arms around. of a flood. Yeah.
0: <laughs> shall there be overflown from before him, and shall be broken. The flood being the overflowing of the king of Assyria, Right. Uh, the vile person doing that. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, and he shall come up, and shall become strong with a small people, and he shall enter peaceably, even to the fattest place of the, the providence. Ooh, little sneaky guy! Yeah. And he shall do what his father... He shall do that which his fathers have not done for his fathers, he shall scatter among the prey and spoils and riches. Yea, he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds, even for a time.
1: And this is amazing. Because, missiles. Yeah, it, well, or nuclear warheads.
0: Well, that's missiles.
1: I guess so. <laughs> okay. He shall scatter among them the prey. So like he, he takes all his dudes that help him and scatters among them the spoils. You help me go conquer, right? And and I'll. But he forecasts his devices. Isn't that interesting?
0: Yeah, it's uh, actually the whole thing is a little uh, disturbing, and yet.
1: (laughs) Well, the amazing thing, I actually didn't put this in here because you know Isaiah can cover it pretty good, but I did it for a linking word. Look what it says. He says. after the league made with him, he will work deceitfully, for he shall come up. Where else have we read, come up? And there came up.
0: A monk a little horn. Yeah.
1: A little horn. It's so amazing, because in the scriptures, the smallest things can be linking words. Like, the little horn came up. Just start looking up, come up, through scripture, and you're going to find parallels to the little horn. And we said that... The the little horn cast down, cast down and come up are linking words when you're talking about these prophecies in the end time. Okay, Isaiah chapter 10, Um, hail the Assyrian, his glory. Then we can see that he had glory, but this servant, you want to read this one?
0: No, I was just thinking of the reaction. Uh, of Glenbeck,
1: <laughs> I know, right? This is the one he said. Oh my gosh. I gotta read that one on my show. Hail, you wanna read it? Go ahead.
0: Hail the Assyrian, the god of my anger. He is exactly. the rod. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry,
1: you can't you can't say God. Yeah.
0: You're right. The rod of my anger
1: <laughs> Thank you. He
0: is a staff, my wrath in his in their hand. I will commission him against a godless nation, appoint him over the people deserving of my vengeance. Ouch. Yeah, that's the part that Gunbeck just went. Oh.
1: To pillage for plunder. Why to are spoil they? attacking, up for spoil.
0: Him? To tread underfoot like mud in the streets. They want to take the spoils. Nevertheless, it shall not seem to him. This shall not be what he has in mind. His purpose shall be to annihilate and to exterminate nations, not of you. The abomination of desolation.
1: Absolutely, it's right there. Again, in Isaiah ten, you have him saying, "I have impounded the wealth of the people like a nest." It's, you've got all of this. You know, I have done away with the borders of nations. I have gathered them up. And the important thing that we notice here is that. The king of Assyria is the thief. He's the one that's impounding the wealth of the people. He's the one that's robbing the world. Jesus Christ says that in my second coming, it will be as a thief in the night. Jesus isn't the thief. He's the thief. He's the wrath. And it's a metaphorical. And again, we saw this in Isaiah 14. Right when Jesus was... was growing up out of arid ground I rise in the heavens I set my throne above the stars of God and I ascend and you notice that it's right there he's all about me he magnifies himself above every God in Daniel 11 but you notice that it's when he does that I, 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 I thing the tables turn that it flips and that's why the night when you were telling me that The abomination of desolation is set up at the exact same time as Michael stands. I just, oh my gosh, that is exactly true.
0: It's the reversal.
1: The great reversal, in Isaiah. This is another interesting one, you know, like space station kind of stuff. For when the windows on high are opened, the earth will shake to its foundations.
0: Yeah, there's there's part of that that troubles me because I've always loved science and space and how
1: could how could it fall into the wrong hands? Right, dang that whole thing in back in Deuteronomy about building up armies and chariots because they'll fall into the wrong hands. All right, in Isaiah thirteen, one of our chapters we were supposed to read, we we notice here that because of all of this nuclear missile warfare type stuff going on. It says that I I will cause disturbance in the heavens and the earth is jolted out of its place. Notice that the earth is jolted out of its place by the anger, by him. That's, He's the one.
0: That's just frightful.
1: That's destroying the earth.
0: Yeah, the, the, we're talking these bombs big enough to actually rock the planet.
1: Right. In the day of his blazing wrath, there yeah. he is again. He's the one that does it. All right. So we have whole cities turning into flying dust in twenty nine. We have cities disappearing and amid thunderous quakings, they're consumed with conflagrations of devouring I, fire. I want to
0: bring out, you know, this.
1: These are actual quotes from the. I know. I,
0: I, I was going to bring out this concept that you know this sounds like we're seeing gloom and doom.
1: Am I emphasizing the destruction of <laughs> Babylon too
0: much? But I, I was just sitting in my. I mean realize we're reading scripture right this isn't us making it up we're right. reading scripture
1: and there's just as much salvation going on as we're singing the songs of salvation yes
0: remember that it's it's the great and terrible day and, and, cities disappear amid thunderous quakings they're consumed in in devouring fire i'm sorry i'm Conflagration. Yeah, I was going to say that word's tripping me up. <laughs> they billow upward clouds. in mushrooming clouds.
1: What's a mushrooming cloud?
0: Yeah, you had a picture of it a minute ago. Joel saw it. Like it's
1: on top of our Babylon umbrella, a right? mushrooming cloud. Uh,
0: the earth is scorched, and the people are but fuel. Ooh, this is. This is.
1: This is the wicked being being unleashed on the wicked. In the end time. And hopefully we are part of the group that Paul said that we are not ordained for the wrath.
0: For the wrath, yeah. Which is kind of fun if you, I don't know, we're about to get there. But we'll get there in a minute probably.
1: More mushrooming clouds of smoke. You told me I killed the horse. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, this is like. (laughs) There's your pillows of smoking, Joel. Okay, but here's your verse. Verse 32. And it shall come to pass. That whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom he shall call.
0: So in this instance, it's real important to read DNC eighty eight, about verse ninety six, I'm gonna say, right mm-hmm. in there. Right in that area, read about the saints. See in the face of God. The veil. At this crossover point.
1: Yeah. It's, and Michael's it's, it's
0: beautiful and terrible all at the same time. The great and terrible day of the Lord.
1: All right. So in our reading, we were to pick up chapters 28 through 31. And I, I kind of have hit. Ephraim in chapter 28, and and these are all woe chapters. Woe to Ephraim, woe to Jerusalem, Uh, woe to the Egyptians who are making alliances and trusting in the arm of flesh rather than trusting in their God. And then...
0: Ahaz, King Ahaz. Yeah,
1: King Ahaz. And there it is in chapter 31, the one that we're skipping over, those who look to Egypt and not to God. There's nations looking to us that should be looking to God.
0: Yeah, because we're about to disappoint everybody in a big way. We're already disappointed. And
1: when Ahaz made covenants with the foreign nations, instead of his God, he made a covenant with death. And that is what's going on in these early chapters of the disloyalty side. But when we get to chapters 55 through 59, that's the loyalty side. That's when we'll get to the covenant keeping that's going on, the millennial covenant that's being established. Now, We can't skip over chapter 29, because this one is quoted in the Book of Mormon, and this is the one that talks about the sealed book. But before we quote that verse really quickly, take a look at what's happening in Jeremiah chapter 32. You remember he was told to buy some property right before Babylon came in to destroy? And so, in a time of war, he's told to go into a war zone and buy some property, and then paper probably got
0: a deal on it. Put
1: I I could comment on that. I'm not going to. Okay, You tell told to seal the deed in a jar, and that it it would be continue for many days. Okay, it's very symbolic. What's very very fascinating is there's an ancient copper scroll that has actually given plot locations. For a treasury that they think could have that deed in it. Hmm. Whoa! What if that deed came forth? What property is it that Jeremiah paid for?
0: That'd be fascinating. That
1: would be fascinating, right? Daniel twelve says that the book of Daniel is sealed, right, to the last day. So what what we're looking at is what does "sealed" mean, right? Um, it says in. Isaiah, well, it could be one definition. Look at this one. In Isaiah 29, 11, it says, The vision of all is become to you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. Now, you know the church history on this one. What is it?
0: Sure. When, when
1: Charles Anton.
0: Yeah. was and Martin the script Harris. And- Says I can't read a sealed
1: book. Exactly. He and, and and because he tells Martin Harris to bring him the whole Book of Mormon and and he says I can't, and then he says, Well, I can't read a sealed book, and that's directly one prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah it's the first 29, layer, of 11.
0: Order, a layer.
1: But look look closely at this verse, and the vision of all is become to you as the words of a book that is sealed. Who else saw a vision of all of it?
0: Well, Isaiah, for one.
1: Exactly. So, so
0: Isaiah's book.
1: Is Isaiah like, itself is a sealed book.
0: Understanding-wise, until knowledge is increased.
1: Until we had the work of, of Dr. Abraham Gileady. And And in many ways, the book of Isaiah is unsealed. We can show you the literary structure, show you what he was doing, and you don't have to guess anymore what he was saying and what he meant. Okay? Um... I think it's fascinating in Ephesians it says that grieve not the Holy Spirit whereby you are sealed. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have documents that are sealed by the connotation
0: read. on sealed yeah. being almost an anointing.
1: But the connotation I was trying to to help us to to think about is that the seven scroll in Revelation. It's sealed because, like Jeremiah,
0: it's to be opened. It's a deed, yeah. And
1: that seal is a le- makes it a legal document. If you break the seal, then it's it, it's could be a forgery. It's it's not it's not legal yeah, it needs anymore. Needs to be
0: opened at the time of under witnesses.
1: Exactly, and it's fascinating when you take all these definitions and you blend them together because, like, when we're sealed in our forehead. That's a legal seal by which God can legally claim us. Claim us. Right. And it also helps you realize that when Jesus opens the seventh seal, that's a title deed to the earth. And he's claiming it as king. Right. Some fascinating stuff to think about. Beautiful actually. As, as we look at the, the unsealing of the books in Isaiah chapter 29, look at this one. Mormon chapter 8, And there are none that do know the true God, save it be the disciples of Jesus, who did tarry in the land. So that's we're talking about the three Nephites there. Until the wickedness of the people was so great that the Lord would not suffer them to remain with the people, and whether they be upon the face of the land, no man knoweth. But behold, my Father and I have seen them, and they have ministered unto us. And whoso receiveth this record, and shall not condemn it as of the imperfections which are in it, the same shall know greater things than these. Behold, I am Moroni, and were it possible, I would make all things known unto you. Well, it's not possible because the Lord won't let him.
0: Well, plus the fact that you can't fill a jar that's not got enough room to fill.
1: Exactly.
0: We need to make room in our jar.
1: But he promises those that receive the Book of Mormon... The same will have greater things revealed to them. So what greater things? In Third Nephi, and now there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach the people. Do you remember in the beginning we read that in the last days the words of Christ would come forth? In Third Nephi 21 it talks about this servant that gets marred. He brings forth the words of Christ. The part of the Book of Mormon that we have only has a hundredth part right. of the words of Christ. Where are the rest of the words of Christ? The sealed Next portion. verse. But behold, the plates of Nephi do contain the more part of the things which he taught the people. So the sealed portion is those words of Christ. And these things I have written, they are a lesser part of the things which he taught the people. And I have written them to the intent that they may be brought again unto this people from the Gentiles according to the words which Jesus hath spoken." And there's our missionaries bringing this lesser part of the Book of Mormon to the world. And when they shall have received this, which is it expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it shall so be that they shall believe these things, then Shall the greater things be made manifest unto them? And if it's so that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them. Is part of the reason I put the Book of Mormon scriptures and our and our our restored scriptures in the Doctrine and Covenants in our book Daniel Unsealed because Daniel's understanding Daniel's timeline prophecy unsealed because it says that if you will not. Receive the lesser part of the Book of Mormon, then the greater things will be withheld. Okay. To your condemnation, by the way. Behold, I was about to write them all that was engraven upon the place of Nephi, but the Lord forbade it and said, I will try the faith of my people. Now notice... That in Ether 4, it says, And now, after that, they have all dwindled in unbelief, and there is none, save it be the Lamanites. And they have rejected the gospel of Christ. Therefore, I am commanded to hide them up in the earth. Behold, I have written upon these plates the very things which the brother of Jared saw. And there never were greater things made manifest than those which were made manifest unto the brother of Jared. So we have the words of Christ We have the greater things of the brother of Jared. There are many things that are still to come forth. For the Lord said unto me, They shall not go forth unto the Gentiles until the day that they shall repent of their iniquity and become clean before the Lord. Interesting. Is that at the time when some of the Gentiles reject the fullness of the gospel, while some repent? And in that day that they shall exercise faith in me, saith the Lord, even as the brother of Jared did. When did the brother of Jared exercise faith? What was happening?
0: They were getting ready to sell across the ocean. The
1: Tower of Babel was falling.
0: Well, yeah.
1: Holy cow, think about that. That was my thing. Yeah that they may become sanctified in Me, then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw, even to the unfolding of them. Unto them all My revelations, saith Jesus Christ. Now notice what happens when we get the record of the brother of Jared in the sealed portion. It says, and he that will contend against the word of the Lord, let him be accursed. And he that shall deny these things, let him be accursed. There's a whole faction of people that reject the sealed portion when it's revealed. And I will show unto them no greater things, saith Jesus Christ, for I am he who speaketh. So its it becomes a polarizing event when the sealed portion comes forth and listen in Ether four, just in case we thought that. We were really righteous because we believe. Look what it says. Come unto me, O ye Gentiles, and I will show unto you the greater things, the knowledge which is hid because of unbelief. Come, O house of Israel, and it shall be manifest unto you how great things the Father hath laid up for you from the foundation of the world. But it hath not come unto you because of unbelief. Maybe we have to first learn to believe Isaiah. We need to learn to believe the words that are written in Scripture. And like I always say, stop telling the Scriptures what they say and let the Scriptures tell us what they say. By using literary tools that Isaiah teaches us to use. The linking, the structuring. Notice how many things happen in God's own due time. time.
0: What's a due time?
1: Well, when a baby's due, it's an appointed time. The Lord fulfills his covenant with the house of Jacob in his own due time. In his own due time, he performs his work. He brings forth the records of the Nephites in his due time. And he reveals the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon in his own due time. But notice that he reveals other sealed books as well not just in their own due so time. daniel is unsealed in due time isaiah is unsealed he gathers israel and he redeems zion and comes to reign on earth all of these are appointments they're due times now i love this in dnc 35 because look at this it says it's talking about the fig tree and the and and god says that Even now, the summer is nigh. Remember that when the time of the Gentiles is over, the summer is over, the wheat harvest is done, and we move into the restoration of the house of Israel and the fall feast. And I have sent forth the fullness of my gospel by the hand of my servant Joseph. And look at this verse. And I have given unto him the keys of the mystery of those things which have been sealed. The keys... For the sealed records has already been turned through the restoration of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And those things, I I believe that it's through the restoration that we have been able to, Abraham Gileadi has been able to help unseal the words of Isaiah. And that we've had the keys to unseal many of the things in the book of Daniel dnc 45 you look and behold the fig trees and you see them with your eyes and you say when they begin to shoot forth their leaves are yet tender and summer is now notice there's no fruit there's only leaves in the summer that's exactly the same thing that was preparation happening. for fruit yeah and that's exactly the same thing that happened with that tree that jesus cursed and his first coming it was all full of leaves but it had no fruit so they had the gospel, but they rejected Christ. With the restoration, we have all the leaves, but will we bring, be fruitful?
0: Believe upon Him.
1: Even so, in that it shall be in that day when they shall see all these things, then they will know that the hour is nigh. The hour of judgment. The hour when the fruit becomes good again on the tree. And they will be looking forth for the great day of the Lord to come, even for the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. So many beautiful scriptures there.
0: So understanding Daniel's timeline, Prophecy Unsealed, our new book, kinda goes into the exploration of the unsealing of Daniel. And we're not gonna spend a lot of time in that, but just know that that's ready for pre-order on our website.
1: Yeah, just wanna make people aware that you can can order it there. And then, Again, I said I wanted to. I wanted to make sure you knew about the two battles before we leave these chapters in the Book of Isaiah. Um, the battle of Ephraim, the the battle that we fight in America, or the land of Egypt. It says Jehovah will cause His voice to resound, and make visible His arm descending in furious rage, with flashes of devouring fire and explosive discharges and pounding hail. This is an attack of the King of Assyria, but at the voice of Jehovah. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken. They who used to strike with the rod at every sweep of the staff of authority when Jehovah lowers it upon them, they will be fought in mortal combat. This is the George Washington's dream. This is when he sees the, the, the men and the women standing to the very end and right when it looks like all hope is lost, that great light shines. In that day shall Jehovah of hosts be as a crown of beauty and a wreath of glory to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who repulse the attack at the gates. And through the hand of God, as God empowers them in that battle. And the Assyrians are turned back to their own land, we learn in Daniel chapter 11. So what's going back when they get back to their own land? Daniel 11 says they're furious against the holy people and they go to attack them, right? Well, Isaiah 31 is going to talk about that battle there. And again, you're going to see the difference between fighting with mortal combat and taking the battle to the gate. Whereas in Isaiah 31 in Jerusalem, something different happens. Return to him from whom you have contrived to go far astray, O children of Israel, for in that day every one of you will despise your idolatrous silver and gold, by which your hands have incurred guilt. And Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man, a sword not of mortals shall devour them. Before that sword they will waste away, and their young men melt, and their captain shall expire in terror, and their officers shrink from the ensign, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So this battle in Jerusalem is fought by the Lord, the sword not of mortals. I imagine probably by that time Jerusalem will have no strength to defend itself any longer. Well. Just like
0: Revelation Hezekiah. kind of says there, you know, basically just like seems lost.
1: So Isaiah 47 talks about the fall of Babylon, just like we said. I'll show it to you here. This is when the harlot Babylon falls, which is kind of in the middle when the abomination of desolation uh, occurs. Sit speechless and retire into obscurity, O daughter of the Chaldeans, Babylon. No longer shall you be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was provoked by my people, so I let my inheritance be defiled. I gave them into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. Even the aged you waist down heavily with your yoke. You thought, I, the eternal mistress, exist forever. And you did not consider these or remember her final destiny. So we're going to end with the judgments on the nations in Egypt. In chapter 19, I said you should read this chapter. This one is all about Egypt anciently, which is typologically America today. And just, just see if you think this applies to us today. Now, the Egyptians, too, are part of this Babylon conglomerate. Everything that is not Zion is Babylon. Now, It's interesting that the Lord should enter Egypt because Egypt is where Ephraim was born and grew up. It was the land where Joseph ruled under Pharaoh and was a type of the Lord's servant ruling under the Lord himself. It was a time when there was deliverance and salvation for Joseph's brothers whom he brought to Egypt and delivered from the worldwide famine. It was a kind of a time of prosperity under Joseph. It was a time of safety and a protection from the seven bad years, or from the seven years of drought. All this is a type of things in the end time.
0: It's fascinating when you say that. When you look at the levels of Lake Powell, and you look at the levels everywhere, we are in serious drought. And what follows drought? Famine. Famine.
1: So it's ominous for the people of Egypt. Swift clouds, it says the Lord comes, arrives on swift clouds in 19 verse 1, would again identify judgment at the hand of the Assyrians. Storm imagery there. Historically, the Assyrians went down into Egypt and cleaned it out. The Egyptians were no match for the Assyrians at that time, and that serves as a type. The king of Assyria conquers all the lands of the world, the whole world, except for the people of Zion. It's got to be America because it's the only superpower that fits the description. What is the purpose? To heal us. There is an indication here of a three-year warning that Babylon will fall from the time the Lord's servant begins his mission as referenced there. He serves a warning that within three years catastrophe will happen on the world. And it's fascinating here because again hosea is quoting isaiah 19 when he said god will smite us but he will heal us all you who live in the world all you inhabitants of the earth look to the ensign when it is lifted up in the mountains heed the trumpet when it is sounded for thus says jehovah to me i will watch in silence over my dwelling place when the searing heat overtakes the reapers here, how about this one? in uh, 19, verse 11. The ministers of zone, which is the capital, uh, so in, a, in today it would be like Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., okay? The ministers of zone are utter fools. Mm. The wisest of.
0: Not hard to see.
1: <laughs> the wisest of Pharaoh's advisors gives absurd counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, we ourselves are as wise as our first rulers? Let's get rid of the Constitution. Where are your wise men indeed? Let them please tell you if they can discern it what Jehovah of Hosts has in mind for Egypt. The ministers of Zone have these are all capital uh, governing cities in Egypt. The ministers of Zon have been foolish. The officials of Noph deluded. The heads of state have led Egypt astray. The land of Judah shall become a source of terror to the Egyptians. All reminded of it shall read what Jehovah of hosts has in store for them. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, both young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to Egypt's shame. Here we see that the rivers are turning foul, Egypt's waterways are drying up. Which is what I just talked Uh about. And you see that textile workers will know despair, and all who work for wages will suffer distress. And when the poor and the needy require water, and there is none, and their tongue becomes parched with thirst, I, Jehovah, will answer their want. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up streams in the barren hill country and springs in the midst of the plains. I will turn the deserts into lakes and parched lands into fountains of water. In that day, five Hebrew-speaking cities in the land of Egypt will will swear loyalty to the Jehovah of hosts. One will be known as the City of Righteousness. In that day there shall be an altar erected to Jehovah in the midst of the land of Egypt. What's in the middle of America? Jackson County. Jackson County, yeah. And a monument to Jehovah at its border. They shall serve as a sign and a testimony of Jehovah of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to Jehovah because of their oppressors, he will send them a Savior who will take up their cause and deliver them. Jehovah will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians shall know Jehovah in that day. They will worship by sacrifice and offerings, and they will make vows to Jehovah and fulfill them. Jehovah will smite Egypt, and by smiting heal it. They will turn back to Jehovah, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and ye will be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they which shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and they shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. And we're going to move into the little apocalypse. We're going to talk about it more and the songs of salvation that are being sung in all of this destruction when we study chapters 48 through 54. And we'll do it in that context. But basically those chapters that we were assigned to read, 24 through 27, God's people who repent are released from suffering while their enemies in Babylon suffer a full measure of covenant curses. Salvation for Zion consists of a remission of her sins and deliverance from distress, and her curses turn to blessings. The God of Israel brings about the spiritual aspects of Zion's salvation, while God's servant brings about its physical aspects. The God of Israel suffers a full measure of covenant curses on behalf of His people before He is exalted as King of Zion, as we saw in the Servant Tyre Parallelism.
0: Thank you. You can always find us at Prophetic Appointments.
1: And don't forget, you can watch Isaiah classes and get more in-depth on all of these chapters. But Thank you for joining us
0: and have a to day. study
1: the amazing book of Isaiah.